Welcome to This Moment in Democracy. I'm Saladin Ambar. This episode was recorded on February 21st, 2023. Today, in honor of Black History Month, we'll be speaking with Assemblywoman Verlina Reynolds-Jackson, who represents the 15th Legislative District in New Jersey. Her career as a social worker, coupled with a commitment to public service, led her to the elected position of East Ward Councilwoman, where she became the first African-American female to serve in that position, and Council Vice President, where she legislated laws for the city of Trenton. The Assemblywoman also serves as a commissioner on the state of New Jersey Martin Luther King Jr. Commission, the Amistad Commission, and is vice chair of the New Jersey Legislative Black Caucus. Her work has focused on social justice, enforcing business responsibility, affordable housing, environmental protection, and demanding accountability for students. Assemblywoman Reynolds Jackson, we are so honored to have you. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Dean. Thank you so much for having me here today. I really appreciate it. Well, it is it is our pleasure, truly. So I thought we'd begin by having you share with us about your political journey. How did it begin? Um, has public service always been a priority for you? What was it that led you to think, you know, I want a career in public service? So I have to say, um, which I absolutely love, I am a YWCA girl and I grew up in the YWCA where it was all about empowering women and eliminating racism. So from a youth, I just, you know, I was that one that's always pushing, 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 um, especially into the arts and just being, just being me. And so as I matured into an adult, that's something that just grew with me. It's a part of my DNA. Um, I'm a social worker by trade. That's what I went to school, uh, TCNJ for social work. I was a social worker for many years. And I, I don't think you ever stop being a social worker, right? Okay. Um, <laughs> and when I started, actually, I wanted to be an early childhood educator. And it just, that didn't happen for me um, at that time. And so, you know, I, I'm still passionate about the youth passionate about helping people, especially our, uh, the youth and the elderly and the disabled population. So uh, my brother, who I call my first best friend, um, is a part of that population. And so I found myself always having to defend him while he was small. Now he's a grown man now. He's 6'5 and over 200 pounds. So oftentimes, you know, when I got to teenage years, he was the one protecting me. But it, I, I just felt like those barriers, simple things that we take for granted, you know, trying to fill out an application, trying to get a job in those spaces where, you know, some people aren't as advanced, right? So you have some that are and some that aren't, and you just have to find out where your special place is. And having to navigate that for him was very challenging, but it was something that that was my first best friend as my brother. But it wasn't just him, you know, as I, I started going out, I was working with, um, as a social worker, the barriers to get through government just wasn't helpful. It wasn't helpful to our seniors. It wasn't helpful to the community. And I just remember saying that if I'm the social worker, I'm the one with the degrees, I'm the one that knows who to call and who to contact, who to write letters to, quote, unquote, um, and I'm still having all these difficulties, how does the average person navigate this system to get the resources they need for their family? 
that's just extremely overwhelming. And so that's really what led me to this. I was, you know, um, wanted to be involved in the community. I started going to my neighborhood watch programs and um, I had a senior, Miss Snell, I'll never forget it. She had a stump in her sidewalk. Um, and she said, it's been there for over 20 years. Now, mind you, I just started coming to this meeting <laughs> like okay. six months, but this problem has existed for a long time. And so she said, if I were your grandmother, you would have get this, you would have gotten this fixed for me. Mm. Like, wow. dagger, dagger in the heart. Wow. And it wasn't something that was complicated, Dean. It wasn't complicated. I just, you get the street number, the cross street, you send it into PSCNG. It was fixed in like two weeks. It didn't hmm. take 20 years. It didn't take, you know, special contracts. It didn't, it took somebody putting the information in and they fixed it. And I wasn't even elected yet, Dean. I wasn't even elected official. I'm just a neighbor just doing this. Right. So. Well, that is a great story. <laughs> things that really, right. you know, your neighbor she is someone's grandmother she reminds me of of that you know and that's why i'm so passionate about making sure everyone has access to services is those those stories like that well it reminds me of uh when uh i'm dating myself here but senator alphonse damato in new york was known as senator pothole and it was sort of a, a joke but the truth of the matter he wore it with a badge of pride uh mm-hmm. because he felt he was getting to his constituents, the very basic things they need. And, and, and you just illustrated that, how important it is. We can get very highfalutin in oh. politics and, and forget that people need basic things on a day in, day out basis. So you go from b- being a social worker here in the, in the diverse state of New Jersey to maybe the not so diverse New Jersey state legislature. Right. Uh, what challenges uh, did you face as a young black woman coming into the legislature? Uh, and then as the first African-American woman uh, as the, uh, to serve as councilwoman for the city of Trent, could you talk about what those experiences were like for you? You know, there's no there's no book. <laughs> there's no book. And to know me, I take a class for everything, Dean. I just can't help it. I love learning. <laughs> I bought a house. Real, t- real story. I bought a house and I got a real estate license. True story. So I love learning. But when I got to the legislature there and to city council, there was no book. There was no one to guide you through how to do this. I had um, mentors that I would talk to, but you know that was again. I'm a I'm a I'm a visual learner. I like to see, um, and I also have a, a background in finance, and so for me, I had to be able to connect the dots for the finance piece in order to see how does the services hit the street. And I just remember saying, I'm going through all these budget presentations, budget. I was like, but this isn't telling me how you came up with this number. I needed to learn more. And so, you know, it was difficult because I was pushing people that weren't used to being pushed, first of all. And then I I was extremely young. Uh, who are you? Why are you asking these questions? And then it made them uncomfortable because I don't know if they didn't know, but they had to go get answers. And I had to be able to explain it to someone else that had the same question. So I, I had to be a leader instantly 
because my colleagues didn't know either. And so, you know, my social work background, my patients, your skills, they all like kicked in to be able to say, let's let's see how we can do this. And we had different personalities. When I was on Trenton City Council, we were a whole new board. So we had the interpersonal skills were at the height. You had to know how to yes. you know, get along with folks and sure. you know, you have your good days, your bad days. You have your soft spoken and you have your outspoken. And, you know, it's me in the middle that's trying to bring everybody together. So how we can move our city forward. So I would say those, those people definitely you know, um, uh, there was a lot of uh, white men in the room. Um, would be able to say there were some white women in the room. Okay. And it's interesting when I started talking to, I remember our tax clerk, I used to talk to her a lot and I would talk to our CFO a lot. And they actually encouraged me to take a class at Rutgers. So I took a class um, over at the School of Government Services. And then I took another class for purchasing 101. And then um, my chief of staff said, you're taking these classes out of order. Like, what do you want to do? Hmm. And I said, you know, I really want to understand the finance. And so I met with someone over there and they talked about how purchasing and, and the uh, certificate of municipal finance officer are very, very similar. You'll learn a lot of the same things. So I began to take the classes. And so I had, you know, the background for uh, budgeting. And then you had the background about debt and utilities and um, all kinds of stuff. And I was like, I'm, I, I understand now. I'm, I'm getting this. So about half, ding, it's a true story. Halfway through, I wanted to switch over to purchasing. And I said, you're halfway done. What are you doing? And he said, this class is getting harder. And, <laughs> and they're not uh, cheap now. But right. mind you, I'm working a full-time job. I'm on city council. I'm taking these classes. I'm married now. Um, so I'm doing all of these things at once. But Dean, I tell you, it was so powerful because the, the knowledge that I received there and my classmates, they were all BAs. They were all CFOs. They were all mm-hmm. in that business world. And so I was able to talk to them and they were so happy. They was like, oh my gosh, I'm so glad you're here. You elected officials don't know anything. And I said, that's why I'm here. I need to understand what's going on here. So long story short, passed the class, received my certification, and I absolutely love it. And I think that is probably one of the best decisions that I ever made. Well, you know, I, I've uh, lost lost my breath just listening to you. I mean, the energy that that you exhibit, uh, and and your story of uh, persistence, but also uh, finding a way uh, to learn the numbers, so important uh, for elected officials. And I would imagine, especially at the local level, the state and local level, very very critical. Uh, something we probably don't talk often enough about. Um, I want to shift gears a little. Go right ahead. Follow up, please. Before you shift, Dean, I just wanted to add. In the legislature, and 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 I think it's just who I am. I reach out to people all the time. We have uh, hearings. We have lobbyists. um, uh, I lived on Wilkinson Place. My mom still lives there, which is two blocks from the state house. I can see my childhood home from the back door of my office. 
Mm. It gives me chills to have the honor to work in that office for the people of New Jersey. But then I think about West State Street and what is on West State Street, the whole lobby row. You have all the League of Women Voters. You have all types of industries. You have uh, Greater Trenton. You have the African-American Chamber. You have, you name it, it's an industry out there. And I didn't know. I didn't know. And so I said, you know what? In order to be a friend, you have to go out and make new friends. So I call people and I talk to them and I follow up and say, hey, I saw that you came to the meeting. You said this, this, and this. How can we bring those resources to Trenton? How can we build on this in Trenton? You know, how can the county participate? You know, I have, I have two counties. I have Hunterdon County and Mercer County. How can we all collaborate? Because in, in my mind, what happens, and if Trenton does well, the whole state does well. But we know that that's work we have to do. And so I just wanted to add that the legislature, I think, is part of the best places to meet people and to be able to get to know them and the industries that they represent. And how can that impact our community? Well, it's a, it's a fascinating um, look into, into the real world of, of, of politics. Uh, and just because it's, quote unquote, grassroots doesn't mean it's any less important. In fact, I think we could we could make a great case that it's the most important uh, place to get things done um, oh, yeah. in your in your local community. So uh, appreciate you uh, sharing that extra bit for us. Mm-hmm. Um, in, in, in the vein of shifting gears, I wanted to see if you would uh, share with us a little bit about the state of policing in Trenton and mm-hmm. throughout the state, considering recent news, mm-hmm. uh, obviously not uh, pertaining directly to New Jersey, but around the country with a number of um, high profile, and they seem to be very much ongoing high profile cases involving uh, the killing of uh, black men and women. Uh, what do you think are the most significant factors facing black youth in Trenton, but throughout New Jersey? And how uh, can we uh, improve upon policing here in the state? So I look at policing in a couple of different ways. Um, I, I, come, I have nine nephews. Okay. Um, and at one point they were, they were children. They're all adults now. But I think about the youth as though they're my own. I think about my family who served in the military, my father, a a Vietnam War veteran. I think about um, my uncle who served in the Washington DC Police Department. I have family that serves right now in the Trenton Police Department. And I think about all the community police officers that I meet and work with each and every day. Now, I told you about Ms. Snell earlier. Ms. Snell was a part of the group where we had community police police officers at. And we have um, police officer, uh, Detective uh, Angel. We have a detective, and I think she might be a a lieutenant now, um, Tamika. Um, Two fabulous Black women leading this. And um, I've been through several administrations, so I've dealt with a lot of different um, directors in the police department. So I'll say, one, I come from a community policing background. I don't think there's enough dollars that we can put on the streets that will lock up everybody and, and, and the world is supposed to be good. I think there is a way that we have to be able to use those dollars to strengthen our community policing and our police officers uh, to be able to work with our youth. 
I think there's a lot of mental health that has to be addressed. Um, I know we started a program with um, pastors that would go out to these crime scenes, but there's also some um, some other thought process that police officers aren't social workers. They're not the ones there to be able to break up certain situations. They are there to protect and serve. And so we have to look at it from that social service perspective where they need additional supports for mental health. And because of some of the systematic ways where we let out a lot, a lot of people from the Trenton state, um, uh, uh, um, mental hospital back some years ago, those people were still out. They still need housing. They still aren't able to adjust just because you take them out. Many of them are still homeless or refuse shelter. And so we have to be able to address those issues in a humane way. And so I believe that there is some great work out there. I know there is a a task force that Rutgers is supposed to be uh, running some research for us, but I think we really have to look at it from that mental health perspective. I also think we have to look at it in terms of housing and access to healthcare. If, If I have no place to sleep and I don't, and I still have to go to work, I want to go to a warm, comfortable place and I'm going to sleep. So it's, it's, it's those type of compelling things that you have housing and health care that must be addressed in order for someone's life to be able to move on. To do that, to not do that, we're just on this vicious cycle where folks just continue to do bad. I also think we have to look at pay equity. I think when we look at um, all the work that was done, we're during COVID, the veil was ripped off of all of our hospitality and our service industry that we couldn't operate. We couldn't function without them. But guess what? They have families too. They need to be able to provide food, clothing, and shelter for their families and work one job. New Jersey is so unaffordable. But when you look at parents having to work two and three jobs to make ends meet, you know, there becomes the issue of where are these kids going to go? And I, I believe in after school programs, but I also believe we should have those great programs in school while they're there. Why wait until after school to do it? Yes. So I think there is a, a, a shift in my mindset that we have to look at. Um, but I know we need some we, we need police officers to be able to protect and serve. There are some 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 people that need institutions. They need to be put in, in special places. Um, and that and I understand that. But that's not a majority of the population. Some of these things that ch- these children, and I'm calling them children, are fighting over is a sneaker, a girlfriend right. breakup. Right. Um, you know, the things that you and I, you know, take for granted. You know how many boyfriends and I didn't been through in a lifetime, you know, it's like uh, you get over it. But they don't have those skills that we have. And so I think we're missing that. And that's where the mental health piece comes in. That's when the school services comes in. That's when we have all of our partners that come in to be able to help um, so that they can learn all of those types of skills. And I, I talked about it earlier when I talked about being on the board, interpersonal skills, they are so valuable, but it's a skill that you must practice every single day. I know I use it in all types of conversations that I have to, you know, reel it back or dial it up. It depends on the conversation. So I think it's important that we have that balance, 
Um, and so we have to continue to figure it out. And it's not a cookie cutter, Dean. It's not one size fits all for everyone. It's, it's you know, depending on the situation. Uh, we've done some um, great work around youth transformative justice. Um, mm -hmm. We have the hubs that we did. We also have some street teams that we're able to do to come in and do some interventions. I think things like that really helps to de-escalate what could potentially turn into something violent, even in the school and at home. So these alternative solutions are what I would like to focus more on as we, in, in Trenton, we need to build our police force, but I think it's a combination of, it's not either or, it has to be the, a holistic approach to it. Well, I think I, I think you hit the nail on the head with that. It's a multifactorial problem, and I appreciate the detailed response. Uh, we, we can't talk about it enough, the ways in which this is a complex, uh, multifactorial issue. And thank you for uh, for taking the time to, to share with us what, what you see uh, the route is to improving uh, the situation of policing uh, here in New Jersey. Uh, I want to mention, since one of the factors is education in school, um, and, and just last week, Governor Murphy passed legislation that expands high school courses in African-American studies. Uh, not everybody around the country, I think, agrees with yeah. his position to do so. Uh, that was with uh, 25 schools across the state. Do you think efforts to suppress uh, African-American studies will continue to grow in other parts of the country? And what do you think of the governor's decision? Oh, so I think the governor's decision was excellent. I think, you know, New Jersey is a leader and he was bold and courageous and stood up for what he knows is right. And so that's what leaders do. So we'll be the leader so that other states can also take the lead. Um, but it's a collectivity, right? So we have the legislature that supports that. And so as we all know, there's, there's the three branches of government. I don't think anyone in our judicial system is going to say, no, we should not teach that. If anything, I see the expansion of for other cultures to be able to say, we want these things too. But I'm proud that we were able to pave the way for this. Um, so I, I, I'm extremely excited about that for the governor to be able to do that. Well, thank you. And uh, I think it's going to be uh, interesting to see how other states Mm -hmm. uh, respond um, uh, to his decision, but also efforts to suppress. We're, we're in a bit of a patchwork situation, as always, on this issue, like so many others. But listen, I, I know you gave just gave a detailed answer about um, policing, but I want to um, see if you have anything you wish to share about um, uh, what's taking place uh, in, in the schools uh, with respect to violence uh, as part of the Capital City Area Black Caucus. I understand you and others are working to address violence in the school system. Uh, what are some of the ways, um, you know, in addition to what you've already referenced, uh, that you and others are working to um, uh, to fight for the nation's, uh, uh, you know, students um, mm -hmm. and and to you know create a better environment for them with respect to uh, their their schooling, their That's education. Cool. Absolutely. So, you know, what I love about the Capital City Area Black Caucus, it's really a family discussion. It's people from all around the county that come to be able to share their their um, their talents and their strengths with us. And one of the great things that came out of and I said it a little bit was the um, the street teams. 
that we got, there was funding for through the legislature. And I believe the mayor also was able to get funding to have these teams to be able to go into the schools for this de-escalation. Um, there's also more that we can do, you know, I think in terms of just awareness, right, about the gun violence that's out there in the street. Um, unfortunately, I do believe that some folks may be, have become numb um, when we have these these episodes, but I don't think it's ever uh, safe or comfortable to be uh, to 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 have gun violence affect you. The trauma that comes with that, the family trauma that comes with that, and we have to be able to address it. And so I think when we talk about you know again the mental health side, what does that mean, right? How, mm. Oh. What does that mean? Does that mean that I get to have special time to talk to someone, my peers? Does that mean that I get professional help? Does that mean um, I could have someone to talk to on the weekends? You know, does that mean that, you know, the principal or the school counselor, I'm able to talk to them next week or next month because, you know, it's not like it's a, you take two Tylenol and trauma goes away. It is it's still with you and it still exists and it comes up in different ways. And so what I like is we're able to talk about this, but the youth are also talking about different ways and expressing themselves, how they feel and why they're in this situation. There's some students, you know, I, I, I found amazing during COVID that they were ready to go back to school. They're like, I want to go back to school. And I, I loved it. And I said, you know what? As much as we don't want to admit it, they really do listen to us. They hear us. They love their school family and they want to be able to go. They want, we have to make sure we give them uh, abilities to be able to travel, to see outside of this, this, the trauma that they're experiencing and how, you know, that is shaping your life in a better way. But you have to be able to articulate that. You can't just sit there and, and, and keep it to yourself. And sometimes, you know, that trauma, it takes your voice away. And so we have to be mindful of students, where they are, and how we can love on them in that space, not forcing them to do something they want, but seeing them in that space. And I think that's the piece that, you know, when we talk about mental health services, when we talk about connecting them with resources, it's not just for the student, but it's for the family, it's for mom, it's for dad, it's for, you know, you, your family, your cousin that was probably with you. You know, we have to be able to address the whole thing because one may tell the, one cousin might tell another cousin something. And, and how do we know if, if they're not comfortable with talking with adults. So I think in this space we are right now, we have a lot of family bonding that has happened and we want to continue that. And we want to continue to have those teachers and those principals and the superintendent be open. And it was yes. the, school, the school resource officers, they wanted to take out of the schools. When I tell you I got that phone call from my high school administrator, I put the call out and Dean, we put the pressure on from the top of New Jersey all the way down. And we were able to stop the commissioner from removing those services from the schools. And it's important. We're not saying that other schools shouldn't have it. 
We're just saying that these schools are in much need and those dollars need to stay there for these services. And it is for those supportive services that the students need. So I think that was just another way of us talking about it in the Capital Series at Black Caucus and putting all of our resources together to send out the charge that we want this not to be removed. And the governor was able to work with us and it stayed in the budget. But this was the third time that okay. this has happened. All right. Well, well, thank you for sharing that. Appreciate it. And we, before we let you go, we do have one more question. We're so thankful uh, for Assemblywoman Verlina Reynolds-Jackson being here with us today. Um, you have also sponsored legislation to ensure New Jersey elections remain secure and fair with the John R. Lewis Voting Rights Act of New Jersey. How does this act protect voters? Some of our listeners probably have heard about uh, the, the John Lewis Voting Rights Act uh, on a more national basis. Can you share with us what's happening here in New Jersey with this uh, uh, proposed act uh, that you've uh, sponsored? Well, thank you so much for that question, Dean. Um, I just want to uplift. Today would have been John Lewis's uh, 83rd birthday. And so it's extremely important that we uh, take democracy seriously. And that's what he did his whole life. He was an ordinary person standing up for democracy. And that's what we're trying to do here in New Jersey. And I know we hear this all the time that New Jersey has some of the best uh, voting protection laws in the country. But I heard and I still firmly believe you can never be too good at protecting our rights. When we think about all of the blood, the sweat, the deaths um, that our people have gone through, you cannot take your foot off the gas. And we have to continue to do it. Number one, this New Jersey Voter Rights Act uh, um, protects um, voters um, from being disenfranchised. It stops us if we ever wanted to, to create new laws about uh, voter IDs that are needed. But we wanna protect those polling locations. We wanna give access to additional polling locations. We want them to have um, uh, materials in Spanish and other languages. We speak more than just English and Spanish. There are other nationalities out there where we need to have this information. Um, we want to. We know that the uh, Section Five was gutted because of the systematic uh, racisms that were put in place. And New Jersey is trying to put it back together. And so we want to make sure that we protect all of those spaces. Um, so those are just a few things that the bill does. And so we're we, the bill. Has hasn't been heard yet in committee, um, but we're, I was saying earlier today that uh, I feel like we have a, a good mass choir, but we need some more people to join us. And so we need the Senate and we need the assembly and the governor to be brave and courageous as John Lewis was in his early years when he was just a young man fighting and coming across that bridge, not knowing what was going to be on the other side, but he was fighting, fighting for democracy. He was fighting for the rights to vote. And, and, and one of his quotes was, you know your vote is important because they wouldn't keep trying to take it away. And when you think about sometimes the collectiveness, when they move our voting places, when they uh, have long lines or there's some malfunction that happens, if you have to go somewhere else, 
be going to work. Um, I, I might not be able to find another location. But, you know, we have new technology. And so I just want to uplift our youth that are out there that might be listening. If you are 16 years old, you can be a poll worker. You can vote at the age of 17 now. And that's our new things that we were able to do in the legislature. Again, trying to increase access to the ballot. So you support people that support your values. And that's what we're trying to do. And that's what this new Jersey's Voting Rights Act does. And that's what we're trying to push forward. Well, I don't have a, a thing to add about that. I think um, for both the Eagleton Institute of Politics and this moment in democracy, it, it expresses uh, the a fundamental sentiment that we all share, which is that everyone has a right, who has a right to vote ought to have it protected. Uh, it is uh, to be cherished most dearly. So Assemblywoman Verlina Reynolds-Jackson, can't thank you enough for being here with us. You've been a fantastic guest and so kind to, to spend part of your day with us. Thank you. Thank you, Dean, and thank you all over at the Eagleton Institute. It was a pleasure to be with you and to share. It's been our pleasure. Today's podcast has been brought to you by the Eagleton Institute of Politics. Eagleton is a nonpartisan research unit of Rutgers University in New Brunswick. This moment in democracy was made possible in part by the generosity of Gerald and Kiko Harvey and Eagleton's many supporters. To support Eagleton's work or sign up for its newsletter, click the links in the description. To learn more about the Institute, visit eagleton.rutgers.edu and follow Eagleton on social media.